At a hearing last week to investigate campus anti-Semitism, Representative Elise Stefanik grilled the president of MIT, Harvard, and University of Pennsylvania about what is considered acceptable speech on campus. The video of her questioning went viral. And since then, Penn's president, Elizabeth McGill, has stepped down. There's pressure on Harvard's president, Claudine Gay, and there is a lot of discussion around this issue. What is going on on campus? Are the universities being hypocritical as it seems to be the case? This is New Idea Live. I'm Ilan Jurno. Joining me is Ankar Gate. Welcome, Ankar. Hi, Ilan. Sorry, I'm on the road in the hotel, so I'm not, I don't have the best lighting. It's good to have you. Let's talk about the deeper issues here because a lot of people are talking about this as hypocrisy. I think the important thing to establish first is just the severity of the issue. And I think the fact that this has risen to headline level is some evidence of that. And of course, since October 7th, there have been protests on campuses nationwide. And many of the students and sometimes faculty are there shouting slogans that are by now familiar from the river to the sea, intifada, globalized intifada. And I think the theme of these protests is, I think, an attack on Israel, of blaming Israel for its uh, uh, own suffering. And it, it's sort of the hallmark of this, well, the, not the hallmark, but the uh, what set the tone for this kind of reaction was an infamous letter originated at Harvard from more than 30 student groups on October the 8th, which leveled exclusive blame on Israel's government and policies for the attack and atrocities of Hamas, which I think many people reacted to rightly as a moral inversion. And since then, there have been uh, donors from various universities pulling back their, their support because of what they see on campus. I think the universities are in a crisis mode, and so this sort of is the context for these hearings. I think what would be good to do is just to hear a couple of the clips that went viral to get a flavor of what was discussed at this three-plus-hour uh, hearing on, on uh, Capitol Hill. Why don't we play the first clip? Ms. McGill, at Penn, does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Penn's rules or code of conduct? Yes or no? If the speech turns into conduct, it can be harassment. Yes. I, I am asking, specifically calling for the genocide of Jews, does that constitute bullying or harassment? If it is directed and severe or pervasive, it is harassment. So the answer is yes. It is a context-dependent decision, Congresswoman. It's a context-dependent decision. That's your testimony today. Calling for the genocide of Jews is depending upon the context. That is not bullying or harassment. This is the easiest question to answer yes, Ms. McGill. So there you have the, the part of what the issue is, as it's seen, there, there are university codes for what is acceptable speech. Then there's the First Amendment, which governs everyone in the country. And there's a concern that the, the universities are not enforcing their codes or enforcing them selectively. And that is sort of the genesis of the claim that there's hypocrisy here. And we'll, we'll delve into that a bit more. I think we want to identify at least two threads here. One is this issue of um, the speech codes and the issue of free speech on campus. And the other one is what's driving the, this, this, this reaction from the university. So let's hear the other clip, which I think is further evidence that people present for thinking that there's a double standard or a, or a hypocrisy here. Ms. Stefanik, you're recognized for five minutes. Dr. Gay, a Harvard student calling for the mass murder of African-Americans is not protected free speech at Harvard, correct? Our commitment to it's free speech- It's a yes speech. or no question. Is that corrected? Is that- okay for students to call for the mass murder of African-Americans at Harvard? Is that protected free speech? Our commitment to free speech It's a yes extends. or no question. 
okay, very, very strained and, and challenging. And I think that's the most dramatic of the whole uh, three plus hours of the, the hearings. Ankara, well, let's talk about these two strands here and d figure out which one is the, the more significant, more essential. So there's the issue of, is this a free speech issue? As many people are saying, is it part of the concerns about speech codes? And then the other, the other strand here is the, the kind of motivation behind what seems like the double standard or the, the hypocrisy. How do you think of this? Is it, do you think of this as primarily a free speech issue or a speech code issue? Yeah, I don't think this is essentially a free speech issue. And the, some of the people talking about it as it's a hypocrisy, a double standard, will, I think, identify this, that it's at most what the university presidents are doing is hiding behind the free speech that, and, and oh, we've got a free speech code on campus, so we can't do anything about these students chanting for the destruction or um, death of Jews, destruction of Israel. And it may well be, I mean, these are private universities, but it's a complex story about why they have, people think that there's free speech on these campuses and, and the administrations and their codes often talk about we try to have maximum free speech on our campuses. So that is an issue, but it's that they're hiding behind it. And um, when it's protests against things that they think are good, and so they think something's wrong with the protest, then it's because, well, we need safe spaces on campus and we have to protect people. And they don't resort to, oh, but we've got free speech, so I guess we have to let this go on our campuses. And if it descends, to the level of conduct and actual harassment of specific students or intimidation of specific students, then we would do something. So it's that the bar is so much lower um, when it's protesters protesting against something that the administration thinks is, well, that's good, you shouldn't be protesting against it. But the, the real question I think is, is there really a double standard here or is it that people are not understanding what their actual standards are. And I think part of the reason that the free speech issue is not the essential here, what shocked people, I mean, you were talking about the protest right after uh, the October 7th um, massacre in Israel, where over a thousand people died in horrific ways. And I think what shocked people is not how can the university allow these protests to happen? It's that the protests are happening. It's that the students want to protest. Um, and, and as you said, like 30 different student organizations at Harvard, their immediate response is, well, this, we're, Israel is solely to blame for this attack. That's their viewpoint. And so it's not an issue of, well, how can they be free to express their viewpoint? It's how can this be their viewpoint? And they're coming to one of the leading schools in the nation, Harvard, and maybe they come into the school with this, these kinds of views, but how can they be at the school for years and this remains their view? That's what is galvanizing people and, and that people are really surprised by, to put it mildly, that really there could be this many people on our leading campuses who think this, in another podcast, we talked about the rise and resurgence of anti-Semitism across the culture, both 
in, on campuses and in on the streets and in, in, in culture generally, and I, and that's obviously the 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 issue that was at on the table at the hearings that we were just seeing clips from. Uh, and, and I want to zoom out a bit and talk about what is it that so you're saying this isn't a double standard. There's something here that explains the fact that when Jewish students or Israeli students are uh, harassed on campus, that the fact that universities don't step in or that they tolerate it or that they turn a blind eye or that they, they regard this as not a, a group that deserves safe space, they deserve to be uh, sort of protected in the way that other groups are. And there's a whole apparatus on campus to make students feel included and to, to ensure there's diversity and things like that that the students who, and I think that a lot of Israelis and Jewish students are saying, well, why aren't we protected? Why are, why are we excluded from this? And so the conversation we had about anti-Semitism is that, that that's not a, a, an exception, but rather an, ex, a, an expression of what of the underlying values here. And that the sort of October 7th has pulled the lid off what's really going on on campus and what are the ideas that are shaping people's minds at the best universities, and I think it trickles down. So maybe one way to talk about this is sort of an essentialization is that in in an important way of all the minority students on campus, and there there are so many now, and and, and sort of multiplying, what is it about the the Jews or the Israelis that make them excluded from consideration? Why why do they not matter from the perspective of this framework that is so prevalent on campuses, which is the way I think of it is it's geared towards finding victims who need to be protected or need to be elevated in some way. And so here is a, a group that isn't included. In that. What, why do you think it, they're not included in that? Why are they ex- seen as no longer significant, worthy of attention? It's essentially because they've succeeded that when you look and, and if you look you think of the World War II and the Holocaust and attempt to wipe the Jews off the face of the earth. It didn't succeed, but it killed millions and millions and millions. And despite that, um, the Jews have been successful in all kinds of uh, countries, including in the U.S. It's often remarked how wealthy and well-educated and so on they are. And it's often you're looking at people who've come, either they flee Nazi Germany or they've survivors of the Holocaust. And they've been able to build a life um, and and a a successful legacy in effect in say in America. But then if you look at Israel, part of the whole history of Israel is it's coming out of nothing. It's people fleeing to there. Often they're not either allowed in or welcomed in other countries. So they establish Israel, and it starts off as its poor, uh, relatively backward. You wouldn't think of it as a, like a leading uh, Western nation, technologically advanced or anything like that at its founding. And it has sympathy when it's people view it as just, well, here's a sort of a refuge for victims. They were so badly uh, persecuted, and now they have... Um, in effect, like a safe space. But once they start succeeding, um, then the world evaluation and world opinion turns first sort of indifferent to them and then against them. And one has to really face 
that I think it's just a fact that that is what happened. And one has to face the issue of why did that happen? Like what is a proper analysis of that? And if, uh, if one thinks, I think properly about that, it reveals um, a very evil motivation and an evil standard, but it's not a double standard. In fact, it's, their standard is who's entitled to moral uh, significance, moral concern is the, it starts off as the victim, but what that really means is it's the person who lacks something. They're entitled to, to, to um, kind of moral rewards and the person who doesn't lack, but what that really means in the end is the person who produces, earns, creates, that person doesn't have a right to what they produce, earn, create. They're supposed to give it up for the people who didn't produce it, who don't earn it, who didn't create it. And if you take that, that's the essence of the morality we've been taught. This is what Ayn Rand calls as the morality of altruism or the morality of self-sacrifice or in Atlas Shrugged, she'll call it, it's the morality of death. Because the, when you start to create, produce, earn, you lose any moral significance, moral regard, and when you don't produce, earn, create, then you're entitled to all kinds of moral concern. And that's, so that puts on the side of the people who are on the side of life, production, creation, earning, building, they don't count. They are to just sacrifice for the people who don't. That is um, a morality that is geared towards death. I wanna pick on something you, you raised there, which is that Sometimes it's thought of as there's an orientation to the victims in a given case. And, and, and the way a lot of people might argue the point is, well, the Palestinians are victims here. Now, I don't think that's true historically, and I don't think it's true in the contemporary situation, but it's a way in which this is masked to some degree. And that I, the point I wanted to, to press on is that what you're describing is a view that isn't concerned with, with actual responsibility for the fact that you lack something. It's the fact that you lack it. And it, particularly if you haven't achieved something, if you haven't taken the steps to do it. So there's, so, you know, when we think of a victim is it's often, does the person bring any of this on themselves? So they, do they have any role in their suffering or do they not have any role? So there's an innocent victim and the victim that has some responsibility of full responsibility for what they're, position is that is not a part of what's this it's not part of this calculation that you're describing in fact it's it's precisely those who haven't taken the steps to improve their situation that are considered more significant than those who've taken steps to improve their situation so there's a real moral inversion and it, it detaches people's actions from their from what they deserve to have so i think it's there's there's a deep way in, in part of what Ayn Rand's analysis of altruism brings out is that in a deep way, this is fundamentally at odds with how to think about justice and desert and who actually does warrants your consideration. So it's, it's a real uh, flipping of what a rational perspective would be. So you, as you put it, it's insofar as people achieve something, that's why they don't count and they never count and they can never do anything right. And insofar as they don't, or they do things that are actually evil, that's the, to the extent to which they do count and they, they are elevated. Does that resonate with you? Yeah, and the viewpoint, one way to put it is 
the viewpoint that has emerged in the last 50 years as the dominant moral viewpoint is altruism undisguised. Um, and part of the what it means that it's undisguised is it's no longer any pretense that the victim is innocent and is suffering because of the machinations of evil forces. And what egalitarianism says is that who's entitled to concern, I mean, this was Rawls' whole view, who's entitled to concern is the least deserving, the least well-off, the poorest, you can't ask any question of why are they the least well off? Why aren't they doing well? Is it because they can't bother to get up in the morning and try to find a job? So you can't ask any question like that. The mere fact that they're at the bottom, they are entitled to the most moral concern. And the people who produce, achieve, they don't really earn what they do. None of them. Not, they don't earn it. They don't deserve it. They're going to be sacrificed for the leaf least deserving. And it was put as, this is the theory of justice. That's what this book. It's a theory of injustice. It's systematic injustice. It's, or you could put it, it's anti-justice. It's, you're no longer to think who deserves their fate because there's no such thing as really deserving your fate. And it's only, you take the people who have ability, who achieved something, and so on, they're to minister to the people who have not achieved anything. That was the whole program. And that it first took over in philosophy departments and in sort of the humanities as the new moral view. And it has now seeped across the universities. And this is, the, this is what they learn in their classes and not just philosophy classes. In basically every class that deals with moral issues, they learn in one way or another this egalitarian framework. And it's a framework that's anti-justice. Just tying this back to what students learn on campus and the, the, the point we're developing here is that there isn't hypocrisy. What you're seeing, in fact, is the, the naked essence of the ideas that students have been taught for many, many decades and that are dominant in academia. One way to concretize this issue that this isn't a, really a concern with, with innocent victims, this isn't a concern with justice, it's, it's, it's the negation of justice. When, when you think about the students who are chanting from the river to the sea and globalizing intifada and in all those pro-Hamas statements in effect, there's a number of things to say. One, I don't think most of those students really know what they're talking about. And if they did, they, they would, I imagine some of them are, good, are um, honest enough to question, am I really in favor of destroying a, a prosperous, basically free country? Am I really in favor of... of killing hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people. I think many of them probably, if they really understood it, they would say, no, I think they're, they're better than that. But the other thing that comes up here is if you really, if you had a genuine concern for Palestinians, and there are Palestinians who are not aligned with Hamas, who are not aligned with the other factions of, of the Palestinian movement, who would rather live in freedom? I think there are definitely people like that. If you had a real concern for them, what you would be chanting is not the slogans of those who are dominating them and exploiting them as human shields and exploiting them as tools to extract international aid from the rest of the world and then leaving them in misery and leaving them on the streets to be uh, uh, cannon fodder. 
you would advocate for the eradication of those who are tyrannizing them, the Hamas and the other factions of the Palestinian movement. If you really cared about Palestinians, you would want them to truly be free, not to continue to live under the domination of the factions that have been in power so long. And then in effect, what these slogans are doing is, is whitewashing Hamas and, and presenting, and more than that, they're actually explicitly talking about this, some of the students are talking about this as justified resistance. Now, none of that is true. That is it just, that's an abomination. It, but if you really cared, if your values really were oriented to how is, what would be a better life for Palestinians? None of what they're saying is what you would say. It's completely the opposite of what you would really be concerned about. And this issue of and I think this is partly masked and partly evaded. I think that there's really a confusion in some parts of with some students, and I don't think there is with most of the faculty who are pushing it. But that issue is, I think, it goes to the heart of what altruism is. So it, there's many misconceptions about what altruism teaches and what it implies. But I think Ayn Rand's account, as we've been talking about, is it is not truly concerned with people. It is not truly concerned with uh, lessening the burden on people who are suffering for no fault of their own. It really is an orientation to zero. It's an orientation to lack. And it, in effect, it provides a blank check or there are many metaphors for how to, to, to capture this, but it provides a, an incredible tool for rationalizing evil and for not being concerned with actual victims. And so this is another version of the point that it's, anti-justice and i and i'm interested in your perspective on the fact that or the, the the claim that i'm making that no one who truly cares about palestinians or about israelis for that matter could honestly if they understood what they're talking about could honestly mouth these slogans and advocate for the palestinian cause to succeed because it has been so detrimental to palestinians themselves really that means pre-october 7th that if you thought of yourself as, look, I'm for more freedom and more justice for Palestinians, you should be and should have been pre-October 7th anti-Hamas that, and, and from its rise to the Western powers, including, uh, unfortunately, we in the US helping Hamas get elected to them then driving out political opponents and, and establishing a dictatorship. This is what you should have been protesting. You should be, have been protesting it for years and protesting the governments, including Western governments, that turn a blind eye or actively helped Hamas gain and keep power. Like if you are actually pro any Palestinians, any individual Palestinians who want to live a better life and want to live in more freedom and have more justice, you would have been for years anti-Hamas, and what happened on October 7th would have just confirmed that they're killers and butchers and they're dictators. But it's not like you needed October 7th to know that. And it's and it and this essentially has nothing to do with Israel. That if you're really pro-Palestinians, that is individual Palestinians seeking a better life, then you have to be pro a leadership that is actually pro-freedom and you have to be anti-leaderships, secular or religious, whether it's the PLA or Hamas, the, who are wannabe dictators or actual dictators. And if you're on their side or you look the other way, 
of what they do, then you can't hold yourself as you're on the side of freedom, of justice, of a better life for Palestinians. Um, and and that's like that's so startlingly absent of that there's had been that kind of protest. I mean, we at ARI protested that our American government is helping Hamas get into power. That, that this is, it, I mean, it's destructive to our self-interest, but it's enormous injustice to anybody who's on the side of freedom and uh, prosperity. But anybody of these protesters, if that wasn't their orientation, they can't hold themselves as pro-freedom. I think it would be useful to expand the discussion to, to include things wider than the Israeli-Palestinian issue, although that's the, the main issue that's going on, activating students on campus and the protests that we've been talking about. But for the, the, the point is that the, the kind of value standard or the kind of inverted moral thinking that we've been discussing, this altruistic perspective, the, the way it corrupts thinking, the way it corrupts people's ability to think morally, this is evident in other ways. I, I thought it'd be useful to, to, to give another example in which what it leads people to do is not actually be concerned or it, it exposes that what their stated objectives are don't align with the what would be actually beneficial for the people that they claim to be uh, in favor of. And I, we were, when we were talking about this uh, podcast previously in preparation, you gave the parallel with the post the, the, pro, the protests that came after the murder of George Floyd. How do you think of that as what, what aspects of that are common here and what are different in terms of the values that are activating people? I mean, what's different is in that um, initial incident, it's certainly understandable that of people watching the, well, what is it, a seven, I forget, it was a seven minute video um, of watching that, of thinking like this is, police misconduct, this is in, injustice, even if he had a counterfeit bill, like the death is not um, the, the, what's warranted or a proper police reaction. Um, so it was like there's a real injustice here and you could understand outrage and protest over that. But what was revealing about the protest is that this kind of, um, a nihilism. So just as with the what happened in October 7th with Hamas, that your whole orientation turns towards Israel and Israel shouldn't retaliate, shouldn't do anything, certainly shouldn't wipe Hamas out of uh, political power and out of Gaza. And then when Israel starts to try to do that, it's all one's attention and outrage is focused on Israel. There, there's something that and no focus on Hamas, that, that's nihilism. It's, you're only focused on the better side and you just want to tear down the better side. That, that is, will accomplish nothing. Will indeed just further death and destruction for Israelis and for any better Palestinians in Gaza. If it's like, yeah, let's help Hamas wipe out Israel. That helps nobody but Hamas and killers. And what was, what, unfortunately was similar with the George Floyd, something like abolish the police as a react, not reform the police, let's get better policing, let's make sure that this can't, this kind of thing can't happen again, or is much more, less likely to happen. That, there are too many 
people that wasn't the reaction it was let's get rid of the police and we saw that sort of trying to play out say in, in, in neighborhoods in Seattle that's a nihilism and it's again if you think of it does it help the um, people in 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 parts of the US cities where the the, uh, the poorer parts that are probably under policed or badly policed but what they need is actual police protection actual um, pursuit of the criminals in these neighborhoods so to render them safer and for again for those people who are peaceful who want to build a life that they have a uh, better opportunity to do that in a US city so you would want better policing not let's get rid of the police as though that will help people in these neighborhoods and it's just it's revealing of that's not their actual concern their actual concern is to tear down and to tear down things that are good like the police are essentially good a needed function and they play their role um, well in western countries that's not to say that there's not elements that need significant change but like if that's your whole orientation it's a negative destructive orientation abolish the police versus how do we build something better so we should uh, start winding down there are a few other things a few other threads that would be good to talk about uh before we do yeah one is the just... yeah go ahead oh go, go ahead sorry i was gonna say i want to talk a little bit more about the hypocrisy issue yeah i was going to go back to this and one of the threads that i was interested in uh is the so i i put myself through the whole hearing or most of the hearing that i could take is a long long hearing and I, one thing that struck me is that the there was a pattern in how the Republican uh, members of Congress versus the Democrat members of Congress approached this issue and how they questioned the presidents of these universities. And th there was a kind of holier than thou attitude uh, from some of the Republicans. Like we, we're, uh, you guys are the hypocrites, we know better and uh, from the Democrats, there was a, a pattern of understanding and, and opportunities to explain and very sympathetic to the, the presidents. Um, and I wanted to flag something we talked about previously in preparation, which is the, a real question here about the sincerity of the, the politicians in this hearing. Is it really an investigation? I don't, I didn't find it to be very illuminating in terms of new facts that came out. It was more the, the politicians lecturing at the presidents and exposing them or trying to expose them and, and hold them to loyalty oaths in effect. And like, do you believe this? And how could you not believe that? Uh, so to me, the, there's a kind of hypocrisy there, which is, <laughs> uh, it's a, that is actual hypocrisy there. And I don't think a lot of these politicians really had a view of this issue and it just struck me as an insincere, in many cases, an insincere attempt to sound better than they actually are. Um, and I think if, if they, if this goes to Stefanik and some of the others, that if you really were concerned about institutions and parts of our society that are important and not sufficiently uh, um, critical of anti-Semitism, and bigotry more generally, and racism more generally, and, and sort of the tribal uh, climate that we're living in, if that were really your motive in having this hearing, which I hope that would be the best motive to have for it, 
there are elements in both parties that are just incredibly bigoted and uh, prejudiced. Why has there been nothing said about that? Why is it that you are picking on the universities and not looking at your own parties? And we've said in other contexts, um, it was about a year ago that Donald Trump got into a lot of trouble because he hosted both Kanye West and Nick Fuentes, both of whom I think by now most people are willing to accept their racists and and why is that not something that there's a hearing about why do you not look at your own party uh, and the same thing can be said of some of the democrats who have uh the, the so-called squad and the things they've been saying since october 7th are just deplorable and why is there no one hauling them in and, and treating them to severe questioning and exposure so i think that there's definitely that's not quite the same thing as the pseudo hypocrisy we've been talking about which is has a different source but there is actual hypocrisy going on which i think is most evident among the politicians we've been talking about but let, why don't you t bring up the aspect you're interested in yeah it, it relates to that so the yeah i thought the hearings as as many of these hearings are there it's political theater it's a political farce it's not an investigation where they're actually trying to figure out something and learn from the witnesses who are testifying. It's usually to berate them uh, and try to expose them. But we've seen that when they call the social media CEOs to accounts. Not, they're not actually trying to learn anything. And here, I don't think they were trying to learn anything. The, the charge of hypocrisy is, as you said, like sometimes there are hypocrites who they, in some at least semi- honest way say these are my principles this is what i stand for but they just so glaringly don't live up to it in practice and people say well look your actions and your conduct don't match what you actually said but often when you think there's hypocrisy going on you should think well maybe it's because this isn't their actual viewpoint that what they've said or how it's presented is not actually their viewpoint and if you understand their viewpoint they're being consistent with their viewpoint. So I think of someone like Stefanik as, this is not hypocrisy. She does not care about anti-Semitism. So that she gets up there and says, oh, look, I'm crusading for anti-Semitism, and how can you not say, that, that, that she turns a blind eye, and, and many people have pointed this out, that she point, as you were talking about, that she's one of the people who turns a blind eye to Donald Trump when he enables, gives a, uh, a voice to, or gives a um, kind of, public exposure to uh, someone like Nick Fuentes, who's, I mean, and if he's not an anti-Semite, I don't know who is. Um, she, she doesn't care. And it's not, oh, I missed that, or I failed to speak, or I didn't. It's, she doesn't actually care about anti-Semitism. And that's the explanation for why she can do what she does. Here, she's scoring points. She's playing to the Republican crowd. And this is a way to get exposure, re-election, campaign for 2024, we're the party who stands against these elites at the universities. That's what's driving her, not I care about anti-Semitism and what's happening on college campuses. So the charge of hypocrisy is not right. And it's important that it's not right because you can't solve the problem by getting someone, just somebody who, well, be more consistent with the ideas. No, there is a consistent viewpoint here that's being put into practice. And it's the viewpoint that's a problem. 
So similarly, when it's about these presidents, first, the, the idea that, oh, they're hypocrites, and if we just replace them with a better president who wasn't a hypocrite at the university, that, oh, the issue would go away. It won't go away. That's part of what we've been talking about the whole podcast. It has deep roots in what's being taught at the universities. It's consistent to the view, egalitarian viewpoint. And the problem then is the egalitarian viewpoint and how much that dominates and who's willing to challenge that viewpoint, not get a president who is not so hypocritical. Uh, in some ways, that could be worse. If you get a president who's, oh, yeah, like we really are egalitarian, that that's what we're going to really push, um, it'll, the, the campus will become worse than what it is right now. Because I think many of these presidents are sort of zeros. They're... they're people who are good at compromising with everybody on everything. They don't really have a viewpoint. I think part of what, I think they were startlingly unprepared for the hearing, mm -hmm. but I also think that some of the sort of, I don't know what to say. So they don't really know what to, to say. They don't really have viewpoints. They're not ideologues in the way that many professors at universities are. Um, and if you got a president like that, uh, replacing one of these people, the campus will be worse, not better. And so the it's not just, well, the hypocrisy doesn't get it quite right. What it suggests as a solution is not a solution. And that's part of what is so bad about the misconceptualization of it as hypocrisy versus as, no, this is their actual viewpoint. This is what they've been taught. And I think another thing to understand, understand that this is the viewpoint is again, the, um, we talked about this in another podcast, I think the podcast on anti-Semitism, but the comparison of the Hamas-Israel war and Russia-Ukraine war. So what happened with the Hamas-Israel, and this is what shocked people outside the universities, is they don't care who Hamas is. As long as they can be painted as they're oppressed, they're a victim, they get the moral standing. They, they get our moral concern. It doesn't matter that they're killers, that they're dictators. It doesn't matter the savagery that they committed in Israel. None of that matters morally to them. And their whole attention is on Israel and we need to tear down Israel. So they completely blank out that Hamas is evil and that Israel has constructed something good. And their whole focus is on, we want to tear down something good. And then, it, and it, it's, if you get the difference between the sort of reaction in the Western world was horror at what Hamas um, did in Israel. And on campus, it was the reverse. It's, um, it seems like they're on the side of Hamas and want to attack Israel. And if, when you look at what happened with Russia, Ukraine, uh, Russia's evil. It invades Ukraine. The Western world, like a normal person's reaction outside of campus is to side with Ukraine. And there were widespread calls for, like, should companies still be operating in Russia? Maybe they should uh, withdraw from their business from Russia. So, and there was like pressure on these companies that like maybe that, that's what morality requires. It's siding with Ukraine against Russia. On campuses, did, did we see anything like the... Um, the protest now against Israel, against Russia, and in favor of Ukraine? No. And that's because Ukraine's good. And so why would they have any concern of ours? And they're trying to build something and create 
they're not just the, the people that we're going to paint as the oppressed um, and and victims who can't help themselves and can't do anything, and so they get our whole concern. And it, it, like that divide between the on campus, the they don't care about Ukraine, but they want to go after Israel, and that the normal person's reaction is, well, we we're on the side of Israel and we're on the side of Ukraine. That tells you something deep about what they've been taught and how they process the world, that they don't care about Ru uh, Russia butchering people in Ukraine, but they want to go after Israel, a free country. Like, there's something very warped in their value structure. We should probably wrap up, but I just want to follow up on one thing you said. So is your point that the behavior of the politicians itself isn't illustrative of hypocrisy, but rather consistent with their value structure, or is it something else? I want, I just want to hear more about that. Yeah, it's that the, it, the hypocrisy for someone with Stefanik would be, look, you're against anti-Semitism and you're rightly going after these college um, presidents and, the, and the, what's happened on campuses is how can there be this much anti-Semitism and you guys don't think there's something to do. And even if the, what to do is, is not, well, we can say they can't protest or something. It's like, aren't you doing some soul searching by how the, this the viewpoint can be so dominant on your campus? And when you watch the testimony, you don't get any flavor to the presidents are thinking, yeah, like how can this viewpoint be so common on our universe? I think partly they know why it's common, but it's like, so that's the, if Stefanik was really was a crusader against anti-Semitism, you could say, yeah, you're doing something good here. You're being inconsistent when you overlook what Trump does. And so but someone who was trying to be against anti-Semitism, it would really stop them and say, yeah, like maybe I have turned a blind eye to Trump. Maybe this is part of what has enabled anti-Semitism. The, the fourth person, I'm forgetting her name at the, at the, uh, at the hearing was writing or has written a book on anti-Semitism. And one of her points was, well, it's broader than, um, it's been normalized on broader than campuses. And part of her is like Trump has helped normalize it. And if you were really against it, you would think, yeah, maybe I am being inconsistent. Maybe I am being hypocritical. And it would at least get a person to pause. You don't get any sense that she would have a moment's pause. And that tells you, well, maybe it's not that she's, uh, her principle is, yeah, I'm against anti-Semitism, but I'm very inconsistent in the application of that principle. It's, that's not what her principle is. That's not what's driving her. And if you then get, yeah, okay, what's driving her is um, more tribal, then you can explain why she would go after the university presidents and wouldn't care about what the president of the nation does because he's in her tribe. Yeah, I was wondering about that because I, I def definitely picked up that the, the, the whole feel of the questioning was tribal. It was part, part of what I was re reacting to. And one of the things that I, I take from Ayn Rand's analysis of tribalism is that it is, in, in a, it is also anti-justice and anti-principle because it's not about thinking. It's not about evaluating firsthand. It's, it's, we have a view that is what our view is and we have our enemies and we know what they are not because of any good reason, but because we've been told that we react negatively to them. And in that sense, it's, it's, 
anti-intellectual in a deep, deep way in the same, not exactly in the same way, but it, it's anti-intellectual. And so it's the, the concerns that they have are not the concerns that you think they have based on what they say. It's, it's a, a conformity to a tribal agenda in what their authorities tell them and in a real unthinking hostility. And I think this is what, why you end up with someone who isn't that sensitive, is not sensitive to their own inconsistency because there is an inconsistency. It's not like she has a principle that she's trying to live up to. It's like there isn't, she's not activated by principles. That's another way to put the sort of anti-intellectualism of it. Yeah. Okay. I, I, yeah. That, that, that resonates with me because I was trying to think about how, because I don't think of her as similar to the kind of faculty reaction or the student reaction, which is nakedly uh, envious or, or, or egalitarian or nihilistic in the same way. Though it, I think they do mesh in a certain way when you get to what does tribalism lead to, it does lead to that kind of thing. Yeah, I yeah, I think that's right. And it's important that like that's what a better conceptualization would look like. And it clarifies, but it also suggests the solution is not the easy one of let's get rid of this president and get another one. And my worry about donors who I think have rightly been outraged by what's happening on campus and it's led them to rethink. And again, it's they're rethinking not from the perspective of free speech or they're rethinking of if this is really what's being taught on universities, do I want to support this with millions of dollars? But what I worry is if they don't go deep enough to what's been being taught and 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 kind of accept this characterization that it's all oh, it's hypocrisy and we just need some better people who are less hypocritical, there's their money will return to the university in a year from now so, and that that the solution unfortunately is uh it's longer term and more drastic than replacing the university president yeah well that, that touches on something you and i wrote about in an op-ed uh, about a month ago on the reaction of donors and how the issue is deeper than they realize all right we put that in the show notes for people uh, thanks everyone for watching today. We, this, we're going to draw a line here. We'll be back next week with another episode of New Ideal Live. And I think we are running a monthly Q&A podcast. So if you have questions for us, you can send them to experts at einran.org and we'll filter them into the monthly rotation of that Q&A episode. Thanks for being with us today. We'll be back next time. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.